The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Great to have you along. And the interview that we're about to dive into is with Maya Angelou. It was recorded about ten years ago, and the audio quality was very bad. It aired on the FM radio a few times. They were happy to play it just because it was an interview with Maya Angelou. But the sound was so bad that I was hesitant to put it out there. A couple weeks ago, I put word out on social media that I had this interview sitting on a CD, just waiting to be heard by everyone out there. And a man named Kevin Hooper listener of this podcast, friend of this podcast, great man, said that he would help get the interview out there. My idea was to put it out there in an audio-visual format, and if you're listening to this interview with Maya Angelou and you decide you want to consume the interview in a little bit of an easier fashion, you can go to the website, thepaulleslie.com. There's a link there to a YouTube video where you can both listen to the interview and also read the words as they are being spoken by Maya Angelou and myself. I'll tell you a little bit more about the interview and about the process, but first I'm going to just present the interview to you now. Again, thank you to Kevin Hooper. And now, with no further ado, the interview with Maya Angelou. It is with great honor we welcome a true Renaissance woman, one of the most important people in literature, a poet, educator, historian, best-selling writer, actress, playwright, civil rights activist, producer, director, and musician, the one and only Dr. Maya Angelou. On behalf of our listening audience, thank you so very much, Dr. Angelou, for joining us. Everyone has a mentor, so I was hoping you could tell us about Mrs. Bertha Flowers. I met her when I was very, very young. But I got to know her when I was about almost eight. I lived in a very small town, and I I had had an abuse, and as a result, I had stopped speaking. I thought that my voice had been instrumental in killing a man, and so I thought it was wiser not to speak. That was my seven-year-old logic. So Mrs. Glass heard about me. She was a black lady in our town. And she um, came to the store where my, my grandmother owned a small store. She came and got me and took me up to the to the school and took me into the school library, the black school. There may have been 200 books, I don't know. I know I have more books in my small library today than in that little school. But it seemed like millions of books to me. And she said, I want you to read every one of them. And read for you and then make notes and, and when I come back, I'll talk to you about it. And then she took me to her house about twice a year. She'd make, um, tea cookies and, and wonderfully sweet lemonade. And uh, then she'd read to me. She introduced me to literature and really began my lifelong love of reading of uh, of writing, too, and of being read, too. 
I think every human being wants to be read to. I still like it, and I'm 80 years old. And that all began with Mrs. Flower. Very inspiring. In regards to you becoming an artist, there is a quote from you that I appreciate. You said, you can become truly accomplished at something you love. Some of our listeners may not know that in the beginning you started in the music and arts with dance. What attracted you to that? I didn't have to talk. I was very tall. My brother, who was older than I, and my mentor, was very short. And he told me that I was a lady, and I was supposed to speak softly. And he was to hold the, the door for me. I don't know where he read that. He did that. He, he was supposed to push the chair up when I sat down. And because I was so tall, he said I, I shouldn't bend over. I shouldn't uh, slouch. I should stand straight up. And he encouraged me to study dance. So when we returned to California, I was 13 and about 5'10". My brother uh, suggested that I study dance. And there was a Booker T. Washington Community Center in San Francisco. So I started studying there and went on to the California Labor School and studied with adults and really fell in love with dance. And I'm still in love with dance. Those loves you have, your first love, never really leave you. You still fantasize. And I believe I could become 800 years old and 300 pounds, I was still a dancer. My bones will not let me forget that I still love dance. Very interesting. That brings us to calypso music. You became a great calypso singer. I was hoping you could tell us what it is you liked about calypso music. I don't know about great. I became known as a calypso singer. And I have, I have no, no modesty, none at all. Uh, I have, I pray I have humility. There's a difference. Modesty is tacked on from the outside. Humility comes from inside. And it says that there was someone before me who laid the path. My responsibility was to try to build a road. I was well known as a Calypso singer. And because I could dance, I would often dance in the middle of a song. And I think that made me very unusual. I love Calypso the way I love blues and country western music because the Calypso, the lyrics tell stories. They're not just about I love you baby and let's uh, make love or something rawer than that. So the Calypso, each one tells a story of, and such a human story. That's what drew me to it. It is a fascinating genre of music. It is indeed. In your book, Singing and Swinging and Getting Merry Like Christmas, you write about singing in church services. What kind of music did you like growing up? I loved all points, and still do. I loved uh, when I could hear European classical music and the American classical music, which must include jazz and the spirituals and folk songs and country music songs. I loved it all. I had the pleasure of hearing Miss Marian Anderson, Ms. Marian Anderson, 
on the video. I couldn't believe a human voice could be so beautiful. And my grandmother loved to hear a song, a West Country song called You Are My Sunshine. And it was the only non-religious song she ever sang that I knew of. And it was so, it was, I could remember that husky voice of hers singing it around the house along with uh, Children of Sorrow and other spiritual songs. As soon as I heard blues, I was about 13 because I moved back to be with my mother and she loved blues. And as soon as I heard the blues, I loved them. Even today, I still want to have that song which tells the story, that lyric, whether written by the traditional uh, folk music, that is, or written by uh, Irving Bertie. I love to hear those. And I loved Lord Cleese and Lord Kitchener. But all of them, I just enjoyed them. Dr. Angelo, some people may not know that the name of my Angelo was adapted around the time you started your singing career. Tell us how you got started with Calypso on a professional level. I was a dancer, and I met uh, some very sophisticated people, artists in San Francisco, and they laughed at folk music. I think all music is folk music. And then they said that folk music was boring. And I said, no, listen to this. And I sang uh, Runjo. Runjo, that's you can Runjo. Hoodie's holding me hand. And Mo and Joe ran a candy store. And uh, Mo did something behind the door. The police came. And they were brothers. And so the one said, Runjo, trying to hold the police and protect his brother. And I just loved it. So when I say it to them, they said, what? They hadn't even heard Calypso. So I sang another. Oh, I sang around like, to a few groups, and I was offered a job as a Calypso singer. So I had to quickly go and try to learn some more. I think I had maybe three. It's not a very large repertoire. I spent about students of learning some more. And I opened in the Purple Onion in San Francisco as Maya Angelou's Calypso singer. Well, speaking of the Purple Onion, where you performed, that was during the time of the Calypso explosion. I feel like Calypso is a very overlooked genre of music today. I think it's still very relevant. It's a great blend of, of different styles of music. And we had the opportunity to welcome uh, Mr. Irving Bergey, who you just mentioned. And he told us a lot about the Calypso explosion and you reviewed his autobiography. Why do you think America embraced Calypso so much? Well, it was exotic. It had humor. Also, it was sung by one of the most handsome human beings we've ever produced, and that was Harry Belafonte. Belafonte was not just handsome. He had an air. He had a presence. And he was irresistible. And with that voice, and his rhythm, uh, he just brought it right through. And then there was the genius of Irving Bertie. Lord Bertie, it was his name. He really wrote some irresistible songs. It was time for it. There was just a time, the 
landscape needed that particular plant to grow. You later joined the Porgy and Best Tour and got to do a lot of traveling. You have said you regarded that tour as pivotal in your life. I was hoping you could tell us about that. Well, I learned, among other things, that human beings are more alike than we are unalike. Very important knowledge. The phrase is, is apt. The travel broadens one. It literally does, especially if you keep your eyes open and your ears and your heart. You learn, oh, I see. In Yugoslavia, uh, we act the same way as they we act in Greece. In Morocco. Okay, I didn't know that. And you mean the people in Turkey act the same way as they do in Mozambique and, and in Little Rock, Arkansas. My goodness. It was pivotal in that it opened my thinking. I cannot find myself a stranger if I'm among human beings anywhere in the world. We have that much more in common than that what separates us. Everybody in the world, particularly who wants a job, wants a good job, wants to be paid a little more than he's worth, not enough to be embarrassed, just enough to say, boy, I'm really making it over now. Everybody in the world wants to be needed, wants to be respected in the work, and to be told this is really a good job you're doing. Everybody in the world wants to have safe streets. Even the people who make the streets unsafe. Everybody in the world wants to, to fall in love and to have the unmitigated goal to accept love in return. Everybody in Bosnia, in Berkeley, in Boston. Everybody in the world wants to have some place to appreciate God on a Sunday, Sunday morning, Saturday, whenever the people meet, if they're religious at all. Everybody wants to have children. If they want children, that is. They want to have healthy children. Now that's true in Paris, Texas, or Paris, France. You see? So true. And someplace to party on Saturday night. Everybody. Jumping back to the music, when you returned from the tour, you began performing Calypso in California, and you recorded a record called Miss Calypso, which we're going to play on this program, and you were featured in the musical film Calypso Heat Wave. Could you tell us about the making of the album? <laughs> You've really done your homework. <laughs> Thank you. I was, I was asked to make the album. I was invited, and then I was told that I had to write some of the songs, and if, if I didn't, I couldn't make the album. So I wrote, I think, six on my... I myself haven't heard that music in 20 years or more. But I, I wrote the songs and sang them and did the whole album in a week. I haven't even thought about the, the album in those many years. It's still around. Yes, I hear. I, I know if you're going to say something. <laughs> Going forward, you have written with the legendary Miss Roberta Flack, and you've worked on a number of music projects after your Calypso album. You did an album with the great duo Ashford and Simpson, and recently a great 
writer Mr. Ben Harper did a, he changed a few of the words around, but he did uh, a song called I Still Rise. I was hoping you could tell us about working with Ashford and Simpson on that album. I feel of them as if they're my children. So down here in North Carolina, if you've seen me, I think Nick went down into playing around in the music room. And I went down and Val went down. And we were just talking, talking to the music. And then Val sat down at the piano. And Nick and I talked to the music. And we sort of had a song. And we just continued, really not thinking about doing an album or anything. And then they came down to visit me in Georgia in Atlanta. And we continued. And before you knew it, we had a, a music. And it's, it's a good CD. It really is. I'm very proud of it. It was unfortunate it never really caught on because it didn't get to the um, exposure. We did Oprah, but the uh, the record company didn't have the records out in the stores. They said they would, but they didn't. And so the people who rushed out to get their CDs, uh, they weren't there and weren't there for another, another two weeks. And by that time, the fever had gone. You know, there's a, a rhythm in the affairs of men and women. And if that rhythm loses the beat, the mind goes on to other things. I'm always amazed at the power of words, whether in poem or song. And Dr. Angelo, you are certainly a woman who has harnessed the power of words. Can you point to any one poem in your life that you read and related to greatly and you found to have that power? I started first thing with Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who still impresses me. who wrote the majority of his work between in the late 1800s a few things in the 1900s before he died at an early, early age. Uh, Mr. Dunbar writing in standard English and in the English of the plantation wrote about the human human being suffering, the laughter, the emotion, the, just everything. So he impressed me and impresses me still. In fact, his poem called Sympathy, from that poem I took the title of two books. And he wrote it about 1893 or 4. And there are just three verses. And the first one is, I know what the cage bird feels when the sun is bright on the upland slope. When the wind blows soft through the springing grass and the, the river flows like a sheet of glass. When the first bird sings and the first bud hopes and the faint perfume from its chalice feels, I know what the cage bird feels. I know why the cage bird beats its wings till its blood is red on the thrill bar. Why it must lie back to its perch and cling when the thing would be on the balustrade. And the blood still throbs in the old, old scars. It pulses again with a keener sting. 
I know why it beats its wings. And I know why the cage bird sings. When its wings are bruised and its bosom sore, it beats its bars and would be free. It's not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that it sends from its heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven it sings. I know by the case of And from that poem I took the title of my first autobiography and the title of my sixth and the last one in that series. The song flung up to heaven. Thank you so much for reciting that poem. That was lovely. Thank you so much for allowing me to say the whole thing. What is it you like about poetry, whether it's written spoken or set to a melody in song? It tells the human story. It tells us about our weeping and our laughing and our cowardice and our courage. That's what I like about it. You've had the opportunity to meet some wonderful people. Who among them sticks out in your mind as a Forgetting somebody or overlooking someone who's so important. No, no. I've learned something from a number of people, some who met me well and some who didn't. I'm grateful to be alive and grateful to have friends and grateful to have students and a large family of every kind of person. So we have a family reunion. We are black and white and Asian. Our family unions include Muslims and Jews and fat people and thin people, pretty people and plain people, gay people and straight people. It is my blessing to have met and loved a lot and still daring to love a lot. I can't, I dare not speak of any one person. I actually think that's a, a great answer. The final question I have for you, this program is going out all over the world. So my last question, what would you, Dr. Maya Angelou, like to say to the world? What would you like to say to all of those people listening in? I wish you peace. I believe in the heart of every human being, no matter how cantankerous he or she is, how bellicose and warlike. I believe in the secret heart. There's a desire for peace. I believe we can be peacemakers. I believe we can even be peace bringers. We don't have to wait till we arrive at the destination to make peace. I think we can bring it in our hearts and in our hands. I wish you peace and laughter and love. Very well spoken. Thank you very much, Mr. Nancy. Thank you so much, Dr. Angelou. Have a wonderful day. Thank you and the same. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was the interview with Maya Angelou, recorded back in June of 2008. And a little bit more about how the interview came to be. It was kind of a rough time for me financially. I didn't have a car. I was living in a place where you really needed a car to get around. And so I needed free 
entertainment. I was broke. And I would walk to the library. And I was reading Maya Angelou's books, including I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And at that same time, I had read a book by Irving Burgey, also known as Lord Burgess. He is a songwriter, wrote songs like Deo, Jamaica Farewell, songs that were popularized by Harry Belafonte. And on the back of Irving Burgey's book, there was an excerpt, a quote, I should say, of Maya Angelou giving praise to Irving Burgey's autobiography. I started to investigate the connection between Maya Angelou and Calypso. I got a hold of this album called Miss Calypso that she recorded, wrote a few songs for as well, and I wrote her a letter. It was not long after I sent the letter that I received an email from Fran Berry, who worked with Dr. Maya Angelou, and they wanted to know when I wanted to do the interview. Wow. It's really something. I found a time that we mutually agreed on. I want to say it was maybe just a couple days or maybe the very next day. And we recorded the interview at Jeff Pike Studios. At the time, Jeff Pike was working with me on my radio show. Well, as fate would have it, the audio quality was absolutely horrible. It was very, very bad. Not sure exactly why, but it just didn't sound good at all. Very disheartening. Took it to a guy named Tom Tollerson, who helped clean it up some. Made it sound a little better, but it still did not sound very good. I want to say, of interviews that I've actually used, in terms of sound quality, it was the absolute lowest in quality. But it was an interview with Maya Angelou. The FM radio station that I was on at the time, 89.1 FM, WBCX 89.1, they were happy just to have an interview with Maya Angelou, and so they aired it a few times. And I sat on the interview for years. I've put most of my interviews up on YouTube just so they can be accessed from anywhere by anybody. But I always felt that there was something I could do to present this Maya Angelou interview in a better way. I got the idea a while back, what if it was an audio-visual presentation? If there was a video where people heard the recording, the audio recording of the interview, and along the way, the words were appearing on the screen in a type of transcript. I put it out there on social media. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Kevin Hooper was very, very kind and offered to help. He did the entire video from a transcript that I had provided. It's amazing what you can do with sound, just sound restoration and audio repair just from a computer. It's really true what they say about Macs. They're really, really ideal 
for fixing audio or working with audio. Just the advancements in noise reduction. Not just Macs, all computers. Wow, you can really do incredible things. I had used different programs over the years trying to toy with this interview, but I guess the advancements have just been such that we got the interview sounding so much better, and then Kevin Hooper took it and made it sound even better. So, that was the interview with Maya Angelou, ten years almost after it was recorded. Thanks everyone for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you here on the Paul Leslie Hour. If you haven't subscribed yet, I hope you consider doing so. It's absolutely free, and anywhere that you get your podcasts, we're there. I hope to present more historical interviews like this in the future. I've got a lot of them, and I have more that have not been heard that need to get out there into the world. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.